So we now live in that era that the Old Testament promised that the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts proclaimed. The Holy Spirit, since the first Pentecost Sunday, has been made available to each and every one of us to fill and empower us so that we can love and live more and more like Jesus. And as we move into our second week of a summer full of Jesus story, and hey, I think it's going to be awesome, a summer full of Jesus stories. I'm, I'm pumped. I mean, our, our faith is based on Jesus. The key to life now and life forever is Jesus. We want to become more and more like Jesus. So that's what this summer is going to be all about. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we need to remember that it is the Holy Spirit who works to make us more and more like Jesus. So it's going to be a summer full of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think it's going to be a powerful summer. And last week, Lucas introduced you to four guys who wrote these Jesus stories. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You got a great overview. And all four Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts. But I'll let you go back and listen to Lucas' messages about each of those guys. So we're still kind of at the beginning of the story of Jesus. And I'm going to start with what you uh, might think is the most boring part of the Bible ever. We're going to actually read the genealogy of Jesus. And then I'm going to talk about it. Really. Most of us, you know, when we start reading the New Testament, we just kind of fly over the genealogy like boring or what. I mean, who cares who begat who, right? Just get me to the good stuff. Get me to those exciting stories. None of those boring list of names. I'm here to tell you today that those genealogies, those list of names are important. That they're actually awesome. Hey, guys like Matthew have a ton of great stuff for you and me about what it means to follow Jesus. All stuffed into the genealogies. I know you didn't see it when you read them, but I'm going to help you see it today. I'm hoping that this will be one encouraging message for you. And I grabbed uh, some of the ideas for this message from J.D. Greer. And when I talk about the perfect 14 a little more into the message, that's his brilliance, not mine, okay? But you'll see it's an awesome truth. Now, what Matthew is doing with his genealogy is giving us Jesus' resume. He wants us to see why Jesus is uniquely qualified for the job he came to do. So hear me. Please, please try not to zone out. It'll be tough because we're going to read this genealogy, the first 17 verses of the Gospel of Matthew, that part that you and I both love to fly over when we open Matthew chapter 1. So hang on. Try not to fall asleep. We just got to do this, okay? And let me read to you Matthew's genealogy, Matthew's resume uh, for Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amnadab. Amnadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Are you hanging in there? We've got to keep going. And Jesse, the father of King David. You've heard of him, right? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeroam. Jeroam, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jedaniah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. It keeps going. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. Abud, Abud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliad. Eliad, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matin. Matin, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. And get this. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay, we're done. Did it lose you? I mean, be honest. How many of you zoned out during that? But what you don't realize as you read that is there is so much there. This genealogy is the key to understanding who Jesus really was and why he came in such a crazy way like a baby and at such a volatile time in Israel's history when the nation of Israel was a conquered nation occupied by Rome. Still don't believe me, do you? The English Standard Version translates verse 1 this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The translators of the ESV believe that the first verse of Matthew's gospel is the title of the whole gospel, of the whole book. The whole book of Matthew is all about the genealogy of Jesus. What Matthew is doing is to say that the whole book of Matthew is simply an explanation of the genealogy that we just read. I know, that doesn't throw you either, but it's important, okay? I want you to notice something. There's a very intentional organizational pattern to this genealogy. Matthew explains this in verse 7. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is a little complex, but I think you'll see what's going on. Matthew lists three sets of 14 generations. 14 is, of course, two sevens. And you may not know this, but scholars tell us that in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, seven is the biblical number of completion or perfection. And here's what you also need to know, and it's pretty obvious to some of us. Matthew has skipped a bunch of generations in order to work with the perfect numbers of 14 and 7. And back in Matthew's day, skipping generations in a genealogy was a perfectly acceptable thing to do. But don't try this on Ancestry.com. If you skip a generation on Ancestry.com, everything falls apart. But not in the day of Jesus. You can use one generation to simply represent multiple generations, common practice back then. And the Jews of Israel who Matthew was writing to, they would understand what we don't immediately see because you and I did not grow up going to synagogue school, right? But to a Jew in Israel back then, they got it. Matthew is showing us that God had superimposed his perfection, his perfect 14 onto world history. 
that God is in total control of world history. And not only is God in control of history, but history really is his story. History really is the story of God at work in our world. So hang on to those numbers, 7 and 14, because those numbers represent divine perfection. And with that in mind, let me draw out of the genealogy some fascinating truths that I think can impact your life and my life today. Uh, and really the three truths that I'm going to draw out are, are kind of all related. I, I could have just had one point message, but I'm going to turn it into three points. It just works that way. Well, let's start with the first one. Though the world doesn't always look this way, and it, it certainly didn't w- look that way when Jesus was born, the first thing these genealogies want to teach us is that Jesus is the center of history. Yeah, yeah, I know. Think about it. Jesus was born to an obscure family in a small backwater Middle Eastern country. But despite that, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the center of history. I mean, let me be honest. I mean, nobody. Nobody really in Rome or Athens, you know, these are cities where all the big action was taking place. Nobody in these big cities took any notice of the birth of Jesus. And hey, when Jesus died, very few people outside of Israel had ever heard of him. But Matthew wants us to know through this genealogy that despite what it looks like on the surface, God is guiding all of history according to his perfect 14, according to his perfect plan, and Jesus is at the center of the plan. I get that you might not have seen that all on your own because you didn't go to synagogue school. You missed it. And hey, there are no synagogues here in Fort McMurray, so not much of a chance if you grew up here in this city that you got to synagogue school. But the Jews of the day, they got it when they read this genealogy. And that means the powers of the world, Rome, and today maybe the U.S. or Russia or China, it means those that think they control everything, ultimately, that's just an illusion. Ultimately, they control nothing. God remains in full control of history. Again, it might not look like that God is in control. It sure didn't look like that when Jesus was born into a nation that was occupied by a superpower. Well, when Jesus was born, it it seemed like Rome was in charge. But Matthew's saying, no, no, no. Jesus is in charge. And everything Rome does is under the control of Jesus. Uh, Let me give you a small example of how this works. If you've been raised in church, and I know not all of you have, but for those of us who've been church-raised, you know that the birth of Jesus, you know, at his birth, Mary and Joseph had to travel back to Bethlehem right before the birth of Jesus. Rome had decided to take a census and tax the entire empire. And they wanted everyone to go to their home city to be taxed, and Bethlehem was Joseph's home. Now, the apostle Luke, he just makes a big deal about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Because our God was at work fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy that said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That was predicted by Isaiah. So think about this. I I think this is so cool. God taxed the whole world to move two people 150 kilometers so that we would have more proof that God was behind the birth of Jesus. Right? It looks on the surface like Rome or Washington or Ottawa is in charge. But friends, that is an illusion. Here's how Solomon in the book of Proverbs describes it. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whenever he will. So, what does that mean for you and me? 
It means stop freaking out about the October federal elections, okay? Some of you are just so worked up about politics right now. If we don't elect the right guy, it is the end of the country. Hey, I think elections are important. That we live in a democracy, right, is a gift that we should cherish. And we need to exercise our right to vote. Elections are important, but, but God is not dependent on Ottawa or the Prime Minister to fulfill his purposes, right? And even if it doesn't look like it in Canada at the moment, God is at work weaving history into his perfect 14 so that in the end, Jesus reigns. Hey, I'm going to speak about election craziness in the middle of September, right when we should be at the height of the craziness. And I might be crazy to do that. I get that. But I'm okay to thrust myself out there a bit and take a bit of flack in the process. I just want to remind us that whatever happens in an election, God is still in control. God still reigns. Sure, democracy means that you should promote candidates that you believe are best for the country. We, we need to participate in democracy. But let's never forget that God is still on the throne. Hear me. A sign of Christian maturity is when you understand that everything that God does, or when God doesn't do something and just allows stuff to happen, and we're not just talking politics, actually. We're talking about the details of your life, too. God is in control. And your life and world history, they are never out of control, even if it feels very much out of control. Let me throw another thought out there. As you know, almost two and a half years ago, we as a church responded to the worldwide refugee crisis by bringing one uh, Syrian family, the Alkarnakis, here to Fort McMurray. Friends, it is a huge success story. For the most part, they are now on their own. Median is gainfully employed. The kids are doing well at school. They love Canada. They love Fort McMurray. Thank you for helping to make that happen. It's been awesome. This past week, I was at our denominational district conference where, where I heard some incredible stories that you will never see in the news. Stories where the crisis in Syria, Iraq, and Iran have resulted in more Islamic people turning to Jesus just in the last two or three years than in the entire history of the existence of Islam. So many incredible stories of Islamic people getting dreams where Jesus calls them to follow him. I mean, this is straight out supernatural stuff. Our churches, our family of churches, the Christian Missionary Alliance, they're growing in Iraq, in Iran, uh, in Kurdish regions of Iraq and beyond, in Syria. I mean, it is incredibly amazing what's happening there. And what we need to see right now is that God's hand is at work in this refugee crisis as he is rearranging the nations of the world for his purposes that they would come to know his son Jesus. Friends, that is part of what's happening right now. And it's kind of like what the Apostle Paul said when he was in Athens and uh, there were people there who were deeply religious but didn't know Jesus. And Paul said, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And, and he marked out their appointed times in history and, and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. And friends, that's what's happening in the Middle East and other parts of the world today. Could it be that God has his 14s in order? 
that the shaking that's going on in this world is God making it possible for more and more people who know so little about Jesus that they might come to know the life-transforming love of Jesus for themselves. You know, if God is God, could he not turn up in the middle of the mess of the Middle East or in the middle of the mess of your life? It may not look like it, but he's still in control, working out his perfect 14s. Do you believe that God could be working out his perfect 14 in your life despite the mess? Could it be that in everything, I mean everything that has happened to you, God has a purpose for you? I mean, surely, if God marked out the appointed times and boundaries of nations, he can do that in your life as well, right? Maybe you got assigned a task at work or a job that you didn't really want. Sure, you can be unhappy, grumpy about it, but you can also look for what God wants in the middle of all that. Maybe your house is not selling right now and you're angry at the economy, at the government, but maybe God still has a purpose for you here in Fort McMurray. When things aren't going the way you want them to, can you see God in the mess? He just might be there. That pain you experience, it's intense, it's debilitating, but maybe that gives you an ability to relate to others in the same situation where you can share the love of Jesus in a more meaningful way. Can you see that? You see, a sign that you're getting it. A sign of spiritual growth and maturity is when you begin to view everything in your life, every blessing, every tear, every heartache through the lens of God being in control and that God will use that to help others come to know Jesus. Can things go wrong and God still be in control and still be a God of love in your life? That's what Matthew wants you to understand from this genealogy. Which brings me to the second thing that we see in these genealogies, and it's pretty much the same thing as the first one, but number two, God is at work, even in the chaos and the junk of your life. This is where the genealogy of Jesus gets really fascinating. I mean, normally genealogies just list out father's names, you know, just what's needed to create the links, right? But Matthew throws in the names of some woman, and, you know, at face value, it just doesn't seem necessary. Why? What is Matthew doing? Take a look at verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, only Perez is necessary for the genealogy. The reason he mentions Zerah and Tamar is he wants you to think about their story. Their story is found in Genesis 38, if you want to read this on your own sometime. A man named Judah, some of you have heard of him, had three kids. And one of them was married to a woman named Tamar. Well, his son, um, well, this son of Judah dies before he can have kids. And in those days, if a guy died and left his wife without kids, it was the obligation of the dead guy's brother to marry her and give her children, okay? So the next oldest brother, Onan, he was not too happy about this obligation, but he was obliged. So grudgingly, he took Tamar as his wife. He didn't like her. He didn't want the hassle of kids. And by the way, this is not a PG-rated story. Onan spilled his semen to prevent Tamar from getting pregnant. You catch what he did there? He got the thrills, but made sure it didn't go any further. Maybe the first form of birth control. I don't know. And God strikes him dead for that. Sweet Bible story, right? Great for family devotions. 
You know, there are some very interesting and dramatic stories in the Old Testament. Let's keep going. Now, legally, Tamar is supposed to be given Judah's third son. Third son. But Judah's gone. Uh, she's married two of my sons, and they're dead now. Maybe Tamar is a bit of a curse, right? He doesn't want to lose his last son, so he keeps putting off the wedding date. Who'd blame him? Tamar is getting frustrated. She takes matters into her own hands. She dresses up like a prostitute, you know, puts on really tight jeans and clear heels, and she goes out and hangs at the bar where Judah enjoys a few drinks. She waits until he's a little bit impaired and seduces him to sleep with her. I mean, Judah is just so drunk, he doesn't recognize her. Three months later, she starts showing. She's pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah, the two guys mentioned in the genealogy. But Judah has no idea that this pregnancy is with his kids, and so Judah orders that she be stoned to death because she's been sleeping around. And he's such an innocent guy. And they drag her out, and she says, Hey there, whoa, 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 whoa. I have the belt of the man whose babies I'm carrying. And Judah looks at the belt, and a few others recognize the belt, and it is a bit awkward. By the way, are you feeling a little bit better about your family right now? I mean, is your family like this? This is some messed up stuff, right? Yet, yet God arranges even all through this family dysfunction, he creates his perfect 14. Here's what you need to grab from this part of the genealogy. God is at work in your life too, even when he seems absent and your life is a total mess. I mean, yeah, some of you got some pretty messy dysfunction in your life. I'm not saying that God is happy with the pain that has come into your life. Fact is, he is brokenhearted by it. He is a perfect father, and just like it would anger me for someone to hurt one of my children, it angers God when someone hurts his. But what you need to see here is that God has one overriding purpose in your life, and he stamps his perfect 14 on the chaotic mess of your life. Life sometimes sucks, right? It, it just gets so chaotic and, and it really hurts. But God can flip it over and make something incredibly beautiful out of the pain and the mess. We see, that, we see God doing that with the genealogy that leads to Jesus. He used some incredibly messy people to be part of the family line. And God does that with the genealogy that comes after Jesus. God does that with your life and my life. Matthew, in writing this genealogy, he wants you to know that God is at work even in the chaos, the pain, the junk of your life. So will you trust him? Will you look to him to bring beauty and purpose out of your mess? You see, this genealogy itself is good news. When it looks like your family is totally out of control, when it looks like God is nowhere to be found, where there is so much hurt and dysfunction, God is at work and Jesus is born. God is at work in your mess. And if you let him, he will use your mess for a greater purpose for his purposes. Matthew wants you to know that God loves to work in the middle of mess and dysfunction. And to that I say, praise God. Now, just one more thing I want to draw out of this genealogy, and it's similar, and there are more, but we don't have time. So number three, the gospel, the message of Jesus is for, it's for the outsider. 
Again, all of this is linked and similar, but as you read Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, so many people are listed, have some really embarrassing stories, you know, stories that you don't want others even in your family to know. Matthew mentions four women. We've already uh, mentioned Tamar, the seductive daughter-in-law who's more like a character out of Game of Thrones. And, And then there's Rahab. She's another prostitute. She's not Jewish, but a Gentile that God saved from Jericho. And then Matthew goes on to list David and the wife of Uriah. Well, why doesn't he just say Bathsheba? Why does he say the wife of Uriah? Because Matthew wants us to remember the story of where David slept with one of his best friend's wife and then had him killed to cover it all up. Just another sweet Bible story. Illicit sex with bloody violence, okay? Now, when you do your resume for work, most of you have done resumes for work, you're real careful only to show the good stuff, right? But Matthew, as he puts together his resume for Jesus, he wants to show the dark stuff, the bad stuff, the messed up dysfunctional people who are all part of the line of King Jesus. This is Jesus' family. The genealogy of Jesus is filled with moral failures and mess-ups, the broken and the weak. Moral outsiders like Judah, who sometimes was just a drunk on the look for a good time with a prostitute. And David, his lineage included an adulterous affair followed by a murder. And then ethnic outsiders like the Gentile Rahab and social outsiders like Ruth and on and on. Here's what Matthew wants you to understand. Jesus came to include you and his family no matter who you are. These names are included in the line that leads to Christ so that you know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Christ. Even if your personal history, the story of your life is filled with embarrassing mistakes and challenging situations, God can take all of that and turn it into his perfect 14. You you may think your life is over, divorce is final, job lost, kicked out of school, kids won't speak to you, But this genealogy shows you that Jesus may have just begun to do an amazing work in your life, turning your mess into something exceptionally beautiful. Our God specializes in the broken and the weak. And friend, he can help you. And by the way, we have people who would love to help you connect with them, like our prayer team at the end of the service. He can help you. And our prayer team, they believe and they can pray with you for his help. So as I say every week, don't leave with your hurt, your brokenness without prayer. He can help. Um, He can weave your mess into his perfect 14. And by the way, what this means at Fort City is our message, the message of Jesus is for the outsider, for the broken, for the hurting. Now, I value the excellence. I talked about our worship, how awesome it wants, how awesome it, it was even on video. But you know what? I just don't want us to be a church that puts on a better show than some other church in the city and attracts bored Christians, right? We want to be a church that brings Jesus to everyone, including those whose society overlooks. And maybe bored Christians too, if they're open to being transformed and not just entertained. And this is one of the reasons why we partner with YWAM. Because we want to see Jesus touch and heal lives of people who live at risk, who are pushed to the margins, who some consider to be outsiders. But here's the big point. Jesus is working in your life right now, just like he was working through this genealogy. God is weaving it all together to his perfect 14 with Jesus at the center. 
Matthew gives us a genealogy that leads to Christ, a, a genealogy that is full of dysfunction, chaos, bad luck, mess. But God wove it all together into his perfect 14 with Jesus at the center. Friends, he can do the same for you. So have you received Jesus into your life? Will you make him the center of your life? Will you allow his Holy Spirit to fill and empower you and weave his perfect 14 out of your mess and out of your chaos? So let's pray. And would you take the words that I pray and maybe make them your own personal prayer, kind of pray them in a way that works for you. But let's ask Jesus to work his perfect 14 into our lives. Father God, thank you for the messy family that Jesus comes from. Thank you that you turn messy dysfunction into your perfect 14. Jesus, would you come into my life? Fill me with your spirit. Would you work in my mess and make something beautiful out of it? Just ask him to come into your life. Just, just ask him to work in your mess. I, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to trust and make you the center of my life. Jesus, be the center of my life and the life of those I love and just weave it all into something beautiful. And then use me to shine your light and love to others around me in this city, around the world, that they too would experience this beautiful transformation for themselves. I pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory.